Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 1. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Again, that's Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. Our current topic is gospel-minded prayer. And as the name implies, the purpose of this discussion is to consider how the concept of the gospel transforms our thinking, even about something as basic as the matter of prayer. I said last week that this is an incredibly important matter to consider because prayer, perhaps more than any other aspect of their spiritual life, reflects the spiritual condition of the believer. It's as Robert Murray McShane says. I shared this quote last week, but uh, it's so effective. He says, What man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. We express our desires in prayer. And, give, and we give thanks for the things we truly love in prayer. And we do this presumably when no one else is listening in and no one else is interrupting, not even God. So it's a time when we get to see what we really think. And this way prayer becomes a fairly accurate depiction of our priorities. So what are the types of priorities that we should have in prayer? And how does the gospel shape those priorities? That's the question that we're currently exploring in Philippians 1, 3 through 11. We started last week by looking at the things that Paul is thankful for in his prayers in verses 3 to 8. There we saw that Paul is thankful for people. He gets this financial gift from the Philippians, and the very first thing that he tells them when he writes them back in response is that he's so incredibly grateful, only it's not the money that he's thankful for, but the Philippians. He's thankful for what both the money and the report from Epaphroditus represent about the Philippians' spiritual state. Mainly, it represents that their faith is real, that they're bearing fruit for the gospel. And on the day of Christ's return, they'll be standing with Paul in glory. This is one way that the gospel transforms our thinking in something as basic as our prayer life. It, It changes the things you're thankful for. It reminds us that it isn't our health or our jobs or our social status that ultimately matter. No, the only thing that's really going to matter at the end of life are the eternal destinies of immortal souls. Everything else in this life is already lost. We're already going to lose it all. None of it will survive death except the people that surround us. And so when Paul hears that these friends that he made in Philippi are standing firm for the gospel... He's genuinely thankful, grateful, because he understands the gospel reminds him that people are what ultimately matter. And I'll tell you, in my work as a pastor, this type of thinking, that people are what ultimately matter, has changed dramatically the types of things I'm interested in. In particular, it's changed the kinds of subjects that I'm interested in studying. You see, back when I was a new Christian, all I wanted to learn about was doctrine, theology. And that's not necessarily bad. As I think we'll see as we dive further into today's passage, doctrinal knowledge is actually a really important factor in the Christian spiritual growth. My issue, though, was that while I was really interested in doctrine, I didn't always have a very strong interest in people. 
Uh, Thankfully, that changed over time. I was fortunate enough to have some people in my life who could show me from the Scripture with theology that theology was not an end into itself, but rather a means to an end. And that end, that goal, that purpose was people. The purpose of mankind is to worship God. The problem with mankind is sin. Man does not love God. And so the purpose of theology was to, number one, learn how to love God myself. And then number two, to teach others how to love God as well. In short, the purpose of theology was to transform people. Again, I'll tell you, that changed the types of study that I was interested in dramatically. As I wrestled with how to lead people to love God, I suddenly became very interested in understanding the various dynamics at play in the human condition. Since the scripture explains that the primary obstacle between us and God is our own hearts. And you guys understand what I mean there? The problem isn't on God's end. God has provided a way of reconciliation in Christ. And He would rather that the sinner repent and receive that gift of reconciliation. The problem is that we don't want to accept His terms for peace. The fault in this separation between God and man is entirely on our end. It's a result of our stubbornness and sin. And so as I got a grasp of this concept, I decided I wanted to understand how idolatry and sin operates in our lives so that I could bring the Scripture to bear on those obstacles directly. And sure, I determined to, as much as possible, become a student of the human heart. The Bible says a lot about the operations of the human heart. Well, I wanted to study what it has to say about the heart so that I could learn the skill of bringing the Scripture to bear on the heart in the right way. Since, again, it's people that matter. That ultimately led me to become interested in counseling, and as I've studied that subject, there are several passages that stick out as particularly useful in knowing how to bring the Scripture to bear on the lives of others, perhaps the most useful of which is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. If you're around me much, you know that I tend to bring up this verse all the time. As a matter of fact, you're probably sick of hearing me mention it. But the reason I bring it up so much is because of how eminently helpful it is in understanding how to minister to others. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, just in case you don't spend a lot of time with me, the verse goes like this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or undisciplined, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Listen to me, if you want to learn how to minister the word to others, that's a verse that you need to commit to memory and sink it down deep in your heart. The types of words that you speak, they need to be altered dramatically by the type of person that you're speaking to. If you're speaking to a Christian who's discouraged by their sin, listen, you don't want to rebuke them. That's not going to get you anywhere. They already feel bad about their sin. They already want to change. You telling them you need to get your act together doesn't help them. It only makes them feel more discouraged. It only breaks their will more. No, with that type of Christian, you need to actually encourage them, pick them up, remind them of the power of Christ to conquer sin so they'll have the will to pick up their sword and put to death the deeds of the flesh. And in the same way, you don't want to encourage an undisciplined or lazy Christian. You don't want to tell them, listen, God is gracious and He'll forgive your sin because that's only going to encourage them to continue in their spiritual laziness. Instead, you need to get in their face a little bit and say, hey, God may not disown you because of this sin, but you better believe that He's jealous enough to correct you. 
And if you stay like this, I'll gladly be an instrument in His hand to bring you back to faithfulness because we both love you that much. You have to think about the condition of your audience before you start to address them. I saw this principle play itself out rather recently. I was at one of my boys' flag football games. And on one of the teams, uh, the players were confused. They weren't going where they were supposed to. And their coach responded by raising his voice and yelling at the players. And needless to say, it didn't work. In fact, the players only began to hesitate more and get worse. The reason being, those kids weren't lazy or undisciplined. They were confused. They were discouraged. So guess what the yelling did? It only managed to fluster them even more. They, only, they already wanted to do the right thing, but they didn't know how, and so their rebuke only managed to add fear of correction on top of their confusion. But what they needed was instruction and then encouragement because they already wanted to play well. They just needed to be shown how. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because we're, ter- we're currently talking about prayer. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon for pastors to take the same approach to prayer that the coach did with those players on the football field. They get up in front of the congregation and they point out the example of someone like the Apostle Paul, and then they wag their finger at the congregation and say, now what about you? Why aren't you praying like this? As if that were enough to suddenly motivate their congregation to transform their prayer lives. In short, they try to guilt them into a faithful prayer life. And that's not hard to make someone feel guilty about their prayer life. In fact, I've heard it said before that if you want to make a congregation feel bad, it's not hard. You only need to preach on one of three topics, and that's Bible reading, evangelism, and prayer. Right? Most Christians would probably admit that they're not as faithful in their prayer life as they should be. The problem is that I'd venture that for a lot of them, maybe even most of them, they want to be. Like, it's not as if they're simply indifferent about prayer. No, they know they have a problem, and that's why it's so easy to make them feel guilty about it. So what they really need is some instruction and perhaps even some encouragement rather than a rebuke. And I just want you to know that's the approach I'm trying to take here as we study prayer together. I know that this can be a sensitive subject, It can even be a subject that you may not enjoy. Maybe you even get a little defensive when it comes up. All because whenever it gets brought up, you feel like you end up getting scolded. And that's not what I want for us. When I look out on this congregation, what I see is a group of Christians who are incredibly sincere in their faith. Christians who wish to please Christ. This is a Philippian type of church. You're faithful. And so I would expect that you already want to excel at prayer, Maybe you just don't know how. That's why we're looking at the, uh, uh, the example of the Apostle Paul to learn how. Again, I don't know about you, but when I try to compare myself to someone like Paul, that can be very discouraging. right? Because no, I, I don't match up. Listen, if that's you, I want you to understand that we, when we look at the Apostle Paul, the point isn't to compare ourselves really, to see if we measure up to him as much as it is to learn from his example. Paul was someone who did this well. So if we want to learn how to do this well, then this is a great person to learn from. 
And this is why we're exploring more of the why of Paul's prayers rather than the what of his prayers. You know, I sometimes hear messages that say something like, uh, you know, Paul prayed for these five things. And maybe it's not entirely right, but when I hear those messages, I tend to think to myself, well, good for Paul. <laughs> right? What does that have to do with me? So what? And as I've wrestled with that, I'll tell you, the answer, brothers and sisters, comes in the why of Paul's prayers. Because when you understand why he prayed for these things, it's then that you'll start to adopt the same sort of pattern in your own prayers. And I say that because the foundational truths that drove Paul to pray for those things specifically, those foundational truths are applicable to everybody who's in Christ. So that's what we're going to be looking at once again this morning. We're going to be exploring the evangelistic psyche, the frame of mind that drove Paul to do the things he did and to pray for the types of things he prayed for specifically. Only this week we're going to be doing it by exploring the kinds of petitions and requests that Paul offered up in prayer. The passage, once again, is Philippians 1, 3-11. And in this passage, Paul informs us of the types of things he prayed for with respect to the Philippians. Last week we took at the things that Paul thanked God for in verses 3-8. to And again, from what we saw there, we saw how the gospel drove Paul to value people. This morning we're going to start to dig into his requests. And this is where I think we really start to discover the bedrock of Paul's thinking. This is where Paul is really going to show his hand and reveal the root motivations of really all of his actions. All of his actions. Even including his prayers. But before we jump in, I want to give you a heads up. You see, one of the really fun things about studying Paul is how incredibly consistent he is, both in his life and in his doctrine. The man just has an incredible grasp on how all the various parts of the Scripture fit together to form a cohesive, unified system of thought. And that's saying something, because Paul has an incredibly precise theology. He's very detailed in his thought. So overall, this is really great because it means that when we study Paul, we get to really learn a lot regarding how the Scripture fits together. He's able to give us a comprehensive, theological, seamless sort of system. The downside, though, is that Paul has such a prodigious grasp of the whole of Scripture that it's almost like he has trouble isolating one concept from another. He always sees how each concept is connected with the whole, and he enjoys communicating those connections to his readers. And the result is some really crazy, complex sentences. For example, the passage that we studied last week, verses 3 to 8, look at that real quick there. See how much space that takes up on your page. That's probably intended to be only one sentence in the Greek. Uh, The same type of thing very famously occurs in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, where Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, right, nine verses, is actually just one sentence. Do you understand Paul will sometimes write sentences the length of most other people's paragraphs? Now again, that's not all bad, because by doing that, Paul is able to show us the relationship between all sorts of ideas that would actually be very hard for us to understand any other way. And yet at the same time, it also means that sometimes he can be very hard to comprehend. 
He's tossing in all these different types of prepositional phrases that are describing the way one idea is related to another, and they're really great. It's just that by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you forgot what he was talking about at the beginning. So you have to go back and reread the sentence again and again until you finally start to see the whole picture, the way that Paul sees the whole picture in his head. Again, this is actually very, very helpful. It just takes some effort. And with that in mind, I actually want to work through today's verse backwards. Okay, I want us to go through this verse backwards. You see, I don't know if you've ever heard of the butterfly effect. Has anyone ever heard of that? It's usually described by saying something to the effect of, uh, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and it causes rain in New York. The butterfly effect. On the whole, it's attempting to describe this very complex system of cause and effect in our world such that you could take a very big event like a tornado or a hurricane and if you were to trace it all the way back to its root causes, it'd actually take you back to something as simple as a butterfly flapping its wings and kicking up some dust in the air. Well, that's sort of how Paul thinks. That's how he writes. He sees how one idea is caused by another and so on, only the way he presents it is kind of in reverse a lot of times. He doesn't start with the butterfly and lead you to the event it causes a couple of weeks later. No, he starts with the hurricane. And then he says, and that came from this, which came from this, which came from this, and so on, all the way back to that butterfly in Africa. So even though you're moving forward on the page, you're actually moving backward to the source conceptually. Personally, that's kind of confusing to me. That's why I find it easier sometimes to read Paul upside down, so to speak. And that's what we're going to be doing here today. So in today's passage, Paul describes two requests that he makes for the Philippians in prayer, along with three motives that drive those requests. We're going to be looking at the two requests next week. But this week, we're going to begin by looking at the motives. In fact, we're actually going to look at just one motive today, and that's the base motive, the foundational motive, really, of all of Paul's actions, I would say, and that comes at the very end of this passage. What's that motive? It's the glory of God. Paul prays the way he does because he so desperately wants God to be glorified. Philippians 1, 3-11, Paul writes this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Once again, in today's passage, Paul explains the types of things that he prays for when he mentions the Philippians in prayer. And we're going to discuss what those requests are next week. But first, I think we need to understand the motives in Paul's prayer because that's where these requests start to make sense. I'd venture that Paul's requests probably look very different from the types of requests that we typically make in our prayers. 
And we can start by pointing that out right now, only I don't think that would really help us because it still wouldn't explain why these requests are so different. I think it's only after you see the reason for these requests that they really start to make a lot of sense. Again, it's like I've said over the past couple of weeks, prayer are an expression of our inner desires. They express what we think is most important. Well, if you don't understand what Paul thinks is important, then you won't understand why he makes these requests specifically. So if we're going to learn to pray like Paul, we must first learn how to think like Paul. And that's what we're going to do by exploring the motives for his requests. The requests occur in verse 9 of this morning's passage, the motives in verses 10 and 11. And if you look there in verses 10 and 11, you can identify these motives uh, through a succession of purpose statements, purpose clauses. He informs us of his request in verse 9. And then verse 10, he says he prays this for the Philippians, so that you may approve what is excellent. Or more literally, so that you can discover the things that truly matter. Wanting the Philippians to grow in their understanding in some way. Again, we'll explore what he means by that more next week. In the second half of verse 10, however, we then discover why he wants them to grow in their understanding. He says, and so, or in order to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I think we can start to see the general trend there, right? He wants them to grow in their sanctification so that they're ready for the coming of Christ. So far, this shouldn't surprise us at all. After all, we saw last week that the gospel motivates Paul to pray for people. They're what matter. He wants them to be ready for the day of judgment, and so... We see that working itself out here in his request to the Philippians, or for the Philippians. And there's actually a lot to explore here, again, which we'll explore next week. But there's one more purpose statement that Paul gives here, which I think is probably the most critical of all, because it's the most foundational. It's like I said, once you hit this point, you're hitting the bedrock of Paul's motivations. You can't dig down any further. What's that purpose? Verse 11, Paul says that he wants them to be ready for this day, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You guys see that? Why does Paul want these believers to be ready for the day of judgment? It isn't only about their good. It's also, I think you could even say, it's actually primarily about the glory of God. Paul wants these believers to stand firm and grow in righteousness. He wants them to persevere, to be holy, because that brings glory to God. Now, I'll tell you, this is very interesting. Because what it shows us is that Paul's concern for people isn't only a concern for people. This is where Christians can sometimes get messed up. They realize that the Bible teaches us that people do matter and that maturity is expressed primarily by our love for our neighbor, but they don't understand that this is a love that is tempered or balanced by a concern for the glory of God. And the result is that they think biblical love means simply making people happy, simply giving them the desires of their heart. If it feels good, then it must be good for them, right? wrong. The way the Bible describes love is like this. 
Matthew 22, 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is, the, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You guys know that passage, right? That's Jesus telling this lawyer what the great commandment of the law is. And what is it? What's the foundational principle of the law? It's expressed right here in Paul's prayer. The foundational principle of the law is love for God. That's what man was created for, to give glory to God as the creature made in His image. And so that's what you see working at the basis of Paul's prayers. His chief concern is for the glory of God. So yes, it's good to love your neighbor, but it's a love that needs to be tempered by a love for God. Listen, if you start thinking like that, that's going to give some serious structure to the types of requests that you make to God. After all, if people alone are your only concern, then when bad things come into their life, or when they struggle with the desire for a particular sin, then it's going to be very difficult to make sense of how you ought to pray for them. Maybe you could pray for their perseverance, like Paul says here, because you would understand that the very best gift that they could receive is eternal life. But even still, once that hope is established, once they know that they're believers, it's going to be very difficult to know why you should pray for them to be holy. I think you see this expressed in our society all the time. People seem to have a very hard time understanding why, if God is so loving, that He would deny us all these different types of pleasures that we seem to enjoy. The answer, ladies and gentlemen, is that as much as God loves mankind, that love is still rooted in a passion for His glory. And a lot of the things that we enjoy or desire do not glorify God. Quite the opposite, actually. They denigrate or demean the glory of God in man. So if you want to understand why you should pray for a Christian, listen, a Christian, someone who is saved in Christ, why you should pray for them to be holy, even after they've placed their faith in Christ and have the hope of eternal life, this is why. It's because their salvation isn't the only concern. In fact, it's probably fair to say it's not even the primary concern. No, the primary concern is the glory of God. This is what the Bible reveals to us. The real problem that exists in the world after the fall is not that man is going to go to hell for his sins. After all, that's actually just, right? I know that that may sound harsh, but it's true. If we're saying that hell is a fair punishment for sin, then that's not really the injustice or incongruity that exists in this creation after the fall. No, what's really unfair, the incongruity, the injustice that must be fixed, is that the very creature that God created to represent Him and give Him glory doesn't. God is not honored as God. That's the real problem with sin not our punishment. And so for thinking theologically, for thinking according to what the Bible declares to be true, the real concern that we should have as we look out on the people that surround us is that these people who were made to glorify God don't. And they should. And it's wrong that they don't. Once again, you look at Paul's petition, and it's this sort of thinking that you see reflected in his prayers. Look here one more time. He wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
It would seem that there are probably two senses in which we should understand this statement, two ways that God is glorified through man's righteousness, or in this case, the Philippians' righteousness. The first way is through man's active participation in his conformity to God. That's one way we bring glory to God, when we actively participate in our conformity to God. What I mean by that is this. Man was created to give God glory. And when we dig into the Old Testament, we quickly discover uh, that he can do this either with his obedience or with his disobedience. Either way, he can bring God glory. This is perhaps best illustrated with the example of Israel. God gives Israel his commands to serve as this kingdom of priests, meaning there to serve as the mediator or go-between between him and the nations. And then he tells Israel in Deuteronomy 28 through Moses, he says, now if you obey these commands, you're going to be blessed. And the nations are going to learn about my character through your blessing. He says that he's going to give them all these riches, cause their enemies to flee before them. And then he says, Deuteronomy 28, verse 10, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. You guys see how how that works? The nations are learning to fear the Lord through Israel's obedience as they receive this incredible blessing and protection from God. But then starting in the second half of Deuteronomy 28 and continuing all the way through Chapter 29, God also says, but if you disobey my commands, then the opposite is going to happen. God will instead curse the nation. He'll curse their fields and send diseases upon them. He'll remove his protection. Let them be ravaged by the nations of the earth. And in this way, they'll actually become, quote, a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. In Deuteronomy 29, he even says, all the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. So you see, God can be glorified either way by the people who are called to carry His name. He can display His character either by approving of those who conform to His character or He can display His character by by disapproving of those who don't. It doesn't really matter. And really, we don't even have to dig back into the Old Testament to learn this. Paul himself speaks of those who go to hell in the same way in Romans 9, as he describes how God hardens the heart of one sinner, while at the same time softening the heart of the other. There's this hypothetical objector who says, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul answers, saying, Romans 9, 20-24, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? The idea is that God demonstrates His righteousness 
in punishing the one sinner, just as he also displays his mercy and grace in forgiving the other. Both display the glory and character of God, just from different perspectives. But that being said, there is still a sense in which the way these two types of people glorify God is different. The one who glorifies God through their suffering and eternal judgment, they do so begrudgingly, right? They're not meaning to give God glory. God rather glorifies himself through their judgment. That's different from the one who glorifies God through their repentance and obedience. Theirs is a glorification that they actually participate in actively. Meaning they're pursuing that obedience as an expression of their praise to God. Do you guys understand the difference there? The one glorifies God while saying God is not glorious. And the other glorifies God while saying God is glorious. And it's this second type of person, the second type of praise that really needs to occur in order to fix the injustice that exists in this world because of sin. Mankind was created to declare God is glorious. And so long as he declares God is not glorious, there's a kind of injustice that's occurring in this world, and it's an injustice against God. God ought to be praised by the creatures he made to bear his image. In fact, as we'll see when we get to Philippians 2, this is ultimately why God the Son is sent into the world as a man. He does it specifically to fix this injustice by performing the kind of obedience as a man that man could not perform himself after the fall. Well, it's, this, it's in this same way that Paul prays that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. God is glorified through their righteousness. Because this type of obedience, this active, conscious, willing obedience on the part of mankind comes as an expression of one's delight and joy in God. So God is uniquely exalted as God when this type of character manifests itself in the Philippians' life. Paul's concern for God's glory drives him to pray for the sanctification and holiness of the Philippians for this reason. But if you're paying attention, there's another way that God is glorified through this kind of obedience as well. It comes in the second half of that first phrase in verse 11. Paul notes that this fruit comes, quote, through Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul recognizes that this obedience is coming out of the Philippians. Although it's something that they perform actively, consciously, as an expression of their will, it is at the same time still a gift that comes from God. This tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, this is an idea that can sometimes cause Christians a lot of trouble. And some people will ultimately try to resolve the tension by falling either completely on one side or the other. They'll say that man doesn't have any role in his obedience because it's all of God. Or they'll say, uh, try to say that it's all of man so as not to imply that God would force man to obey against his will in any way. Paul, however, has no problem walking the thin line between these two concerns. You look at how he speaks in this very letter, for instance, and Paul seems to affirm both the sovereignty of God in transforming man and man's responsibility to actively repent of his sins at the same time. For example, back in verse 6, Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. 
The point there is fairly simple. Paul is confident in the Philippians' salvation. And why is that? It's because he's confident that the signs of grace that they're exhibiting are evidence of God's working in their life. And since God has already demonstrated his love toward them in beginning this work, he's most certainly going to bring it to completion. He's not going to do it halfway. This is the basic sentiment of Romans 28. Uh, Romans 8, 29-30, also written by Paul, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're paying attention there, there's no break in the progression of salvation in that verse. Everyone whom God foreknew will be glorified. And yet you jump down here, right? where Paul's making these requests, and Paul is yet praying that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So God is most definitely at work in them. In fact, that's why Paul is praying, right? Because God can do something about their spiritual growth. And yet this does not lead Paul to presume that since God's at work in them, there's nothing to be done on their part. Again, that's also why Paul is praying. He's praying because he believes his effort through these prayers can have an effect on the Philippians' growth. The same tension occurs in chapter 2 as well, where Paul very famously says, Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. He doesn't present these two ideas as an either or, but as a both and. He says, work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. So Paul doesn't try to avoid this tension between these two concepts, and we probably shouldn't either. In fact, as as controversial as this topic can be, I think when we consider what Paul is saying here in verse 11, there's actually no controversy here whatsoever. After all, what he's dealing with here primarily is the righteousness that comes in a believer's life after their faith in Christ. And it's pretty much without question that this is an obedience that's ultimately empowered by the Spirit of God who's given to the believer upon believing in Christ. So whether you believe that that Spirit comes to enable faith, or whether you believe that He's given as a response to faith, we can all agree that the obedience that follows in a believer's life after the gift of the, the, of the Spirit is an obedience that they're unable to perform apart from the Spirit. That's the whole point of Romans 8, where Paul says that Christ has done what the law could not do by providing us with the Spirit who transforms our hearts so that we actually conform to the kinds of standards that the law only demanded. So this is Paul's point when he says that he prays that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is an obedience that is supplied by Christ through the gift of the Spirit who transforms the Philippians so that they willfully, actively, consciously give glory to God. And since this obedience is therefore rooted in God's grace to the sinner, I guess who gets the glory for it? It's God, right? God gets the glory for this transformation. He's displayed as gracious for granting man this freedom from the tyranny of sin. He's displayed as powerful in overcoming the power of man's sin. He's displayed as holy and righteous as a result of the righteousness that He produces in man as a response to sin. 
All of the Christian's righteousness actually points back to the character of God who is the source of their righteousness and thus glorifies Him. Again, this is another reason why Paul would pray for the sanctification and obedience of the Philippians. He wants God to be glorified and their obedience glorifies God as the source of their righteousness. Overall, the idea is that Paul's main concern, his primary motive in prayer, is the glory of God. In fact, I think it's fair to say that it's not just the the foundational motive in Paul's prayers, but it's really the foundational motive in all of his ministry. He even writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And just so you know, that's not just a saying. In context, he's saying he will literally choose to eat one type of food in one scenario and another type of food in another, depending on which type of eating will bring God the most glory. So this isn't a figure of speech. Paul strives to bring literally every aspect of his life into conformity with, what, with which, uh, whatever will bring God the most glory. And that's obviously going to include, of course, the types of requests that he's making for others in prayer. So next week we're going to start to get more into the nuts and bolts of how this root idea ultimately manifests itself in the very petitions that Paul brings before God. We're going to continue to follow the chain reaction of the butterfly in Africa to the hurricane in New York. And at the end of the journey, we'll finally get to see how Paul's passion for the glory of God is ultimately expressed in the very pattern of his prayers. We'll start to see what praying for the glory of God looks like practically. However, the point right now is to simply understand that if you're going to pray rightly, if you're going to offer up the types of requests that God desires from you in prayer, if you're going to pray in accordance with truth, if you're going to pray according to what is really valuable, then this must be the foundational desire, the driving force of your prayers. You may wonder why I would devote an entire week to this topic. And I'll tell you why. I devote an entire week to this topic because I believe that this is really the foundational problem in the prayers of many Christians. Their prayers don't look like Paul's. And the problem isn't just the types of things they're asking for. It's why they're asking for them in the first place. Their root motivation, the basic drive, the basic desire that lies behind all the various requests they make, is their personal happiness or their comfort, their good. All their requests are being shaped by those kinds of desires, whereas Paul is praying first and foremost for the good of God. He's seeking for God's glory. And the reason why Paul is praying this way is because he's thinking according to the reality of the gospel. The gospel declares that the chief problem with the world is that God is not honored as God. This is why God sends His Son into the world to fix that problem. And so Paul prays with that priority in mind. His, his prayers begin, right, as the Lord Himself instructs. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem with most Christians is that they've never had their mind transformed by the gospel message enough that they understand along with Paul that the core idea that should shape all of their decisions, all of their desires, all of their dreams is the glory of God. 
their most basic motivations are not in line with God's purposes. And until that happens, they're never going to find themselves praying for the same kinds of things that Paul prays for because they don't share the same priorities. And to use an analogy, they never cross the finish line. They never get to the point that their prayers begin to look like Paul's. They never reach that point of maturity. But the reason isn't because they trip and fall 40 or 60 or 80 meters into the race. No, the reason is because they stumble coming out of the starting blocks. They mess up on the most basic, most foundational, most essential point, which is, what is the most important thing in the universe? And the answer is the glory of God. Listen, Christian, if you want to see your prayer life radically and fundamentally transformed, the very first step you have to take may be making the realization that God was not created for man, but man for God. Man was created to glorify God. Sin disrupted that purpose. Christ is redeeming it. That's the basic essence of the gospel. Man restored to the position that he once enjoyed of glorifying God. That's the purpose for which you were created, Christian. You are not an end unto yourself, but rather a means to an end, and that's the glorification of God. If you can understand that point and understand the role that sin and redemption play in that point, I guarantee you it will radically transform the types of things that you pray for. You'll find yourself praying for the same types of things that Paul prays for here. Because those are the things that truly matter. Incidentally, this is precisely the type of thing that we're going to see Paul pray for next week. He's going to pray that the Philippians would be filled with such knowledge and discernment uh, that they would be able to approve, quote, what is excellent. The phrase is literally, that which truly matters. He wants them to be able to discern that which truly matters so that they would live their life accordingly and be ready for the day of Christ. Well, I'll tell you, Paul's setting the model for us here. What is it that truly matters? It's the glory of God. And so let's close this morning by praying that God would fill us with such knowledge and discernment that we would pray with this concern at the very foundation of our prayers. Let's pray.